The reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. No confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of them for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me to heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thank you, Pam, for that reading. We'll come to that passage in Philippians in a moment. And it's good to be with you, those of you who are here in church and those at home watching uh, live or later during the week. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Stephen, one of our licensed lay ministers here at St. Peter's. Why are we here today? Well, of course, amongst other good reasons, we're here to remember. Most obviously, to remember those who've died serving our country, British and Commonwealth, military and civilian servicemen and women in two world wars and in later conflicts. Armistice Day, last Thursday, marked the 103rd anniversary of the end of the First War at the 11th hour on the 11th day. Since the Second World War, the focus for our national commemorative events has tended to be on the Sunday closest to the 11th of November. And as I speak, of course, veterans will be marching past the Cenotaph in London following that wreath-laying ceremony. So it's now 103 years from the end of the First War, more than 76 since the Second World War ended. And therefore, most of us here weren't around or will have few personal memories, but we are still here to remember. Why? Because it's right to honour those who gave their lives for freedom. For some of us, that will include our own relatives who fought or served, but never came back. We honour them and those from far-flung Commonwealth countries who gave their support to our country in our hour of need. And two, we honour members of our armed services who've died in subsequent conflicts serving our country. We remember them with thankfulness. But two, I suggest we remember with a resolve that such conflicts should not happen again. War is a dreadful business, however justifiable or unavoidable it may be. Many innocent people on all sides suffer or die, and not just those who've signed up to serve in the armed forces. War also causes terrible devastation of human life, property, economies, the countryside, often hidden under that blanket term, collateral damage. War leaves a terrible aftermath of bereavement, life-changing injuries, dreadful memories, post-traumatic stress disorders. And of course, maintaining the peace is also hugely expensive, using resources desperately needed elsewhere, not least in poor countries. So whatever the rights or wrongs of war, I suggest that on Remembrance Sunday, we also need to pause and ask for God's forgiveness. And as one of our prayers of confession reminds us, it's not just the wrong things we do, but also the times when we fail to do or fail to think or fail to act in the way we should. We all know about the destruction of Coventry Cathedral in that night of terrible bombing. And many of us will have visited the shell of that building which has been preserved. And where the high altar used to be stands a cross made of charred wood from the roof timbers and inscribed on the wall behind it are the words, Father, forgive. Not Father, forgive them, 
those who ordered the bombing or dropped the bombs, but Father, forgive, unspecified, but surely including us too for what we have done or what we have failed to do, both in times of war and in our failings to work for peace. So we remember with thankfulness and we remember with a sense of our own responsibility and need for forgiveness. But too, we remember with hope. Hope, of course, that such terrible events will never happen again. Hope that our government, our armed forces, the United Nations, all who seek to promote peace, security and prosperity will be enabled to succeed in their endeavours. But, of course, we know of ongoing wars in many parts of the world and we may feel helpless to prevent such conflict. So that hope often seems to be a despairing hope. And we're troubled when our attempts to intervene in overseas conflicts results in yet more loss of life to our own armed forces and to local civilians without much sign of successfully influencing the outcome. And so let's turn to our passage from the Bible today, from Philippians, and we're studying that in a series of sermons each Sunday, and today we've come to chapter 3. And here the writer, Paul the Apostle, writes of a hope of a different sort, not a despairing hope, but more a certain hope. He writes with the assurance that what is hoped for will come to pass. As our funeral services put it, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Paul, you remember, was writing from prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. But there's no sense of self-pity. The sufferings that he has been through are considered a minor inconvenience in the light of his faith. Why is this? Because, Paul writes in verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What mattered to Paul was not his upbringing, his achievements, his zeal, but to know Jesus Christ. And although he faced ongoing imprisonment and probable execution, knowing Jesus was what mattered to him above everything else. And because of that, Paul had no anxieties about his future. Indeed, he looked to the future with that sure and certain hope. Why? Because, he writes, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. His readers in Philippi would have understood what he meant. They lived in Philippi. But they were citizens of distant Rome, with all its privilege and responsibilities. And so Paul regards himself not as a prisoner in Rome, held pending Caesar's decision, but a citizen of heaven, and a citizen awaiting the return of the king. Paul goes on, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul can make light of his difficult circumstances in the light of his sure and certain hope for the future. 
he can foresee two possible outcomes, the return of Jesus Christ in his lifetime, or in the event of his death, his own resurrection to be with Christ. First century Christians were expecting that second coming in the light of the promises of Jesus and of the angels at Christ's ascension. If I go away, said Jesus, I will come back and take you to be with me. And the angels said, this same Jesus will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. And Christians today can have that same assurance that Jesus will return someday, somehow, we know not when. Or that when we die, we will be with him. Again, we don't know when that will be or what it will be like, but it is indeed a sure and certain hope. So, meanwhile, how shall we live? Paul reminds his readers that they're not only citizens of Philippi or citizens of Rome, but citizens of heaven. And Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, not to an individual. So I wonder what that may means for today's church, for us here in Farnborough, to live as citizens of heaven. Surely to be eagerly awaiting the return of the King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, to be seeking to grow his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, we pray. And as citizens of that kingdom, we will want to be the agents to bring that to pass. Growing God's kingdom of righteousness and justice and mercy and love. Spreading God's love to all around us in word and deed. Seeking to grow God's kingdom both in depth and in numbers and valuing God's kingdom, which will include protecting God's world, our environment, which God has given us to enjoy and not to exploit or despoil, while we await the return of the king. And I think that has implications for all aspects of our lives as a church and individually. It should affect our lifestyle, being content with what we need rather than always craving for more. It should affect our giving to those in great need in the UK and worldwide. It should affect our service to our community, the new Christians Against Poverty vision and the food bank are examples of that, showing God's unconditional love to everyone, especially those in need. It should affect us at work, seeking to do our best, do our job to the best of our ability, influencing those around us by our integrity and willingness to put others first. It should affect our families as we seek to bring them up to know and love God, or as we pray for them and for the younger generations. And it should affect our witness as we tell of that certain hope that we have in a world that seems increasingly divided and despairing. So we're to live as citizens of heaven while still here on earth, while we await the return of the King.
But if we die before that great future event, Paul ends by telling his readers that God will transform their lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What he means, we cannot know. But we do know that our bodies here on earth are slowly deteriorating. Age and illness catch up with us. Our friends and relatives may suffer or become ill or sadly die. We all know that we are mortal, that one day we will die. So we remember, too, our friends and relatives who've died, especially at this time of year, I think. My own sister died in 1974 from leukemia, age 21. And every time I hear that Lawrence Binion poem, I think of her. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. So some have been spared that process of growing old, of becoming disabled or demented. But as we mourn for them, as Paul writes elsewhere, we mourn, but not as others. Why? Because we are citizens of heaven with a sure and certain hope of resurrection and the second coming of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So today, we remember with thankfulness. We remember with a resolve to work for peace, asking for God's forgiveness. And we remember with hope as citizens of heaven that in God's time we will be transformed and be at rest in his presence. R.I.P. Requiescant in parche. We pray that that will be true for those whom whom, whom we remember today, but we too can know that rest, that peace in our lives today, whatever our circumstances, whatever's going on in the world around us. So may we know that peace, that sure and certain hope as citizens of heaven, not just in the future, but today, now, as we wait for and serve the King, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we remember what he's done for us as we take Holy Communion. Our forgiveness and our hope rests on what God has done in Christ for us. Take and eat. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you. And be thankful. May the body and blood of Christ keep us in eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those whom we honour and remember today and for those known to us who have died and whom we mourn. And we remember what you have done for us in Christ. So as we remember, fill us with hope until we are called to be with you or until Christ returns. And may we live this week as your citizens, citizens of heaven in the world around us, seeking to grow your kingdom among those whom we meet. Amen.